Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started then. Uh, good morning to everybody. Thank you all for uh, for joining us for uh, for the Ashbrook Center's uh, Saturday morning webinar on the question of religion in American history and politics. Uh, before I uh, introduce our two uh, distinguished speakers today, um, let me just go over a couple of pieces of information that might be uh, somewhat useful for our uh, for our participants. If you're interested uh, in uh, in a letter of participation, uh, an acknowledgement that uh, that you participated in this morning's uh, event, an email will be sent out to you, or has already been sent out to you, with a link in that email that will allow you to access uh, such a letter if you uh, if you need it. Um, <clears throat> let me also say that this is our our first of uh, two uh, online webinar sessions dealing with uh, this question of religion and politics. We do the Ashbrook Center does one in the uh, in the spring and one in the fall. So this is our uh, this is our spring session, and in the fall, uh, at that time, we'll be doing a, another webinar on religion and politics, specifically uh, in terms of the Supreme Court. So I highly recommend. Uh, that session, you might want to uh, to keep that in mind going forward, uh, because that will uh, that will also be offered by the Ashbrook Center there in the fall. Um, last but not least, it looks like many of you have already figured out uh, how to uh, to use the uh, the chat function, uh, which is the uh, the best way uh, to ask questions uh, throughout this uh, throughout this seminar uh, this morning. Um, we're probably not going to be using the raising the hand function uh, as we have sometimes done in the past, but what we're going to rely on principally is the uh, the chat function. So we'll be monitoring this. Please uh, feel free at any time to uh, to pose questions that you want to uh, uh, to ask our our panelists, uh, and we will try to get to as many questions as we can. And really, right, we want you to participate. We don't want this to be something where you sit back and sort of just listen to us talk and. And uh, we, we want this to be a discussion, a, a conversation of sorts, um, and we'll try to involve as, uh, as many as we can. Um, with all of that uh, taken care of, let me now go ahead uh, and introduce our, uh, distinguished, uh, our distinguished speakers here this morning. Uh, first, Dr. Stephen F. Knott. Uh, Dr. Knott is a professor of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College. He served as co-chair of the University of Virginia's Presidential Oral History Program and directed the Ronald Reagan Oral History Project. Uh, Dr. Knott received his Ph.D. in political science from Boston College and is taught at the United States Air Force Academy and at the University of Virginia. Uh, he's the author of several books, including uh, Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth, uh, Secret and Sanctioned Covert Operations and the American Presidency, The Reagan Years, At Reagan's Side, Insiders' Recollections from Sacramento to the White House, and Rush to Judgment, George W. Bush, The War on Terror, and His Critics. Uh, his most recent book, Washington and Hamilton, The Alliance That Forged America, was co-authored with Tony Williams and was published in September of 2015. Dr. Knott, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. 
And uh, next, let me uh, introduce uh, Dr. David Tucker. Dr. David Tucker is a senior fellow here at the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University, an associate director of the Master of Arts in American History and Government. Prior to joining Ashbrook, he taught for 15 years at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and worked both in the Pentagon and overseas for the U.S. government. Prior to his government service, Tucker was a William Rainey Harper Fellow at the University of Chicago. Dr. Tucker earned his Ph.D. in history at the Claremont Graduate School in 1981. His publications include Revolution and Resistance, Moral Revolution, Military Might, and the End of Empire uh, from John Hopkins University Press, which is forthcoming in this year. The End of Intelligence, Espionage, and State Power in the Information Age, and Enlightened Republicanism, a study of Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, as well as other books and articles on military affairs and American history. Dr. Tucker, thank you very much for, uh, for joining us this morning. Thanks, Jason. Okay, so without further ado, the topic again is religion in American history and politics, Jefferson and Hamilton on religion and politics. So um, in order to start things off here, let me ask this following question of, of both of our panelists. Um, when we think of the political disagreements between two of the nation's greatest founders, that is Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, uh, we often think of those disputes, those controversies that arose during George Washington's presidency, when Jefferson and Hamilton were serving on Washington's cabinet as the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Treasury, respectively. So the issues, the disputes that come to mind uh, involve the National Bank, Assumption, uh, the French Revolution, the formation of political parties, issues such as those, the major political topics of their day. Uh, but the one area you don't really uh, hear much about is their debate over religion, specifically the, the proper role of religion in the American political order uh, or government support for religion. So my question is, why is that? Uh, especially considering that this might be the one area of disputation that has special significance or the greatest bearing on the modern day on helping Americans to, that is, think clearly about the relationship between religion and politics. So we'll start off with that. Go ahead, David. I'll defer to you first. Uh, well, uh, one thing I would say is that there's a certain view of Jefferson, which I, which I think is, uh, you know, based on the documents that we looked at for today, is uh, is clearly um, not fictitious. Unlike the Tomcat story that Steve was telling, which is that Jefferson would be quite happy that nobody's talking about religion, um, mm. if it's true. I mean, uh, the fact is we're still very concerned with it, as the current presidential campaign makes clear. But he hoped that we wouldn't be talking about it uh, because he felt that it was uh, um, it would it, it could only disturb politics in a bad way if you brought religion into it but and and I think that his his uh, 
the reason we don't, there, there are a couple of reasons why I think we don't think more about religion and politics when we talk about Hamilton and Jefferson, is that all of those issues that you mentioned, Jason, I think are typically taken to be, when you're talking about the founding, be a lot more important than the question of religion, on which there was, um, I think, more of a consensus than exists now. Steve may disagree with that, but I think that division between Hamilton and Jefferson on this question um, is is not as I, I don't think to either of them or to I'll say just say to Jefferson was not as important as the differences the other uh, the other issues they talked about and the and the final point I'll make is that I think for a long time um, historiography I would say from the late 19th century through about the 1960s even into the 1970s. Professional historians tended not to talk much about religion when they talked about the revolution or the founding. They talked about other things. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there was a kind of, you might say, a kind of uh, forgetting of this issue when it came to the founding because there was a, a view among historians that it wasn't very important and it, in fact was not generally important, as important as I think we now believe it is in American history. Yeah, I would, I would agree with David that, uh, and this may be the last time he and I are in agreement, so let's celebrate this moment. Um, but uh, I, I don't think this issue was as important to Hamilton, certainly, uh, than many of the other issues that, that you mentioned in terms of uh, the National Bank or Assumption or the French Revolution or political parties or the role of the judiciary. Um, and I would also agree that a scholar or American scholarship, at least up until fairly recently, uh, tended to ignore the religious aspect of the founding. And it's, it's complicated, I think, at least in regards to Hamilton, in that um, I, I really actually had to struggle somewhat to find relevant documents uh, mm -hmm. regarding Hamilton's position on, uh, you know, st state support for religion or just religion in general. And part of the problem with Hamilton is there's a lot we still don't know about, particularly in terms of his upbringing, uh, which was so dysfunctional and, in, you know, taking place in the Caribbean in a very remote region of the world at the time. So we don't know a heck of a lot about his upbringing. The only thing I could find about his own personal, uh, it's not even a religious practice, but an affiliation with a religion is that for a brief period of time, he was actually um, educated uh, in a Jewish school uh, because of the fact that he was considered illegitimate and could not get into uh, a Christian school. Uh, it seems to have been a relatively brief experience in his life, but there are some accounts of him uh, being able to read uh, Hebrew and having a familiarity with the Jewish faith. Again, I'm not, he was not Jewish, but uh, it's an interesting little episode in the early part of his life when he was essentially uh, discriminated against, I guess, to use a modern term. Uh, because he was considered illegitimate and was welcomed, in a sense, by the, the Jewish faith. But a long-winded answer to say that, that there's not a lot in Hamilton's writings 
about the importance of religion until we, until we get to the French Revolution and the mm -hmm. impact that that revolution had on domestic politics in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay, so even though we don't see uh, in the original primary documents a great emphasis really from either man, Hamilton or Jefferson, on the relationship between religion and politics, that shouldn't, though, diminish um, the extraordinary thing that happens in America at the time of the founding on this question. That is to say, um, the protection for religious liberty. Wasn't that sort of a new thing, a new development in the course of world history? I mean, up until that point, by my understanding, most regimes, in fact, all regimes, determine the religion. As late as even in the American colonies in 1774, I believe Baptists were still being jailed uh, for the crime of preaching without a government-issued license. So this concept of religious liberty, whatever it is, we, I want to talk more about it, especially from the different viewpoints of Jefferson and, and Hamilton, what exactly it means. Um, that really was an extraordinary accomplishment for the Americans uh, during the founding, was it not? Well, let me, you know, I, I would say that there's, whereas there, there, there's not, perhaps in the case of Hamilton, a lot uh, in, the, in, the, in his writings. In Jefferson, it's a constant theme from very early. Um, and, and I think this is part, this ex helps explain, to me anyway, it helps explain the difference between Hamilton and, and Jefferson in that I believe Jefferson was um, in most ways really a more uh, revolutionary character than Hamilton was. And Jefferson was really going after what you said, Jason, was going after the establishment, <clears throat> not only in Virginia, but you could say of all previous human political practice um, with regard to religion. And he saw this as part of a necessary transformation in human life. Uh, and, and in that sense, he was, and, and I don't mean to say, we, you know, we may be inclined to think that therefore, you know, he's better than Hamilton or something. Uh, I'm, I'm not making that argument at the moment. I mean, I, I'm merely trying to point out what I think is an important difference between the two of them. Jefferson was, in this sense, I think, more, as I said, revolutionary than Hamilton was. Whether that was uh, the right thing or the wrong thing is, is, a, is a question. You know, they both agreed. I, uh, I, Steve pointed to that wonderful letter from 1775 where Hamilton says, um, you know, we don't have to search through musty documents to find the rights of man. And that's a point on which both of them would have agreed uh, but I think with regard to religion, Jefferson was a lot more determined to overturn uh, the, this, the accepted political practice, again, not, uh, not just in Virginia, but in all of human history. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, if I could pick up a little bit on what Steve was saying, I think the, the French Revolution, I think uh, my sense is that that's, you know, Steve's right to mention that. It's, I mean, that was a, a critical dividing point when I think, and, and I asked Steve to comment on this. It seems to me that's when Hamilton thought he had to address this issue somehow, Steve, because he saw um, that it was becoming more important in our politics. That is to say, the, the attitude towards religion and the connection between religion and politics. Uh, <clears throat> absolutely true, David. And um, 
one of the big questions, of course, regarding Hamilton and his attitude towards the French Revolution and the fact that he does on more than one occasion cite the hostility of the revolutionaries towards the, the church in France is, you know, was Hamilton genuinely appalled by this, the, the sort of desecration of, of churches and turning them into <laughs> museums of reason <laughs> and, you know, having replacing biblical imagery with farm implements or whatever. Uh, you know, was this a, uh, was, was he genuinely appalled on perhaps religious grounds or, certain, or, or even on um, grounds of principle, or was this simply a political uh, device that he recognized? In other words, this would be an effective tool for the Federalists to, to counter the uh, Jeffersonian Jacobins who were probably planning to do the same thing here. Um, and so that's one question we need to sort of consider throughout this morning, uh, the, the extent to which Hamilton was genuinely appalled, or was this just some practical political maneuver? If I could just quickly also, uh, David referred to Hamilton's writing in The Farmer Refuted, which is from February 1775. Uh, this passage that I'll read to you very quickly could easily have been written by Thomas Jefferson but it does show you that at least in the early stages, there was perhaps a considerable amount of overlap between Hamilton and Jefferson on, on, this, on the issue of, uh, of uh, religion and politics. Quote, the sacred rights of mankind are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of the divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power. I mean, arguably that line could have been written by Jefferson. Maybe he would have left out the hand of the divinity itself, uh, but certainly there was a consensus there that the rights of mankind are rooted in, in uh, natural law. Yes, and, and, and uh, David, doesn't Jefferson in fact say something very similar to that in the notes on the state of Virginia? Yeah, there were... <clears throat> There are places, um, this is one of the odd things. I have to say that, as in most cases, I think Jefferson thinks very broadly, but not necessarily very consistently, in that he, he there are statements you can point to where, and I included those passages, uh, where he um, seems, on the one hand, to give a very... Um, you could say naturalistic, not supernaturalistic account of things. And on the other hand, where he um, calls on God uh, to, to help us out. So, um, and, and so when you're talking about natural law, the question is, what does, what does that mean? And I think there's, there was an agreement that the passage that uh, Steve read, again, I think all of the founders would have agreed with that. <clears throat> you know, they may have... Jefferson may have wanted to take out the mention of the deity, although I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me, convinced he would have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, a, a just a little digression. Steve, when Steve and I have talked previously about Hamilton and Jefferson, Steve has always conceded that Jefferson was the better politician. And that's, you know, from Steve's viewpoint, it's not necessarily a compliment, I understand, but... <laughs> can find, you know, for example, when on one of the occasions when Jefferson returned to Virginia from public service, 
Um, I'm not sure whether it was after the presidency or after his time in Washington's administration, he wrote a, a thank you uh, announcement, so to speak, to the people of, of Virginia who had welcomed him. And he quotes from the Bible, uh, an Old Testament passage. Um, there's also, he, he at one time proposed that the National Seal have, have Moses leading the chosen people to the promised land. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, when you, when you look at other things in Japan, yeah, Steve is laughing, right. I mean, he, he was, he was, cap he understood the religious sentiments of the American people and he was not um, hesitant to try to draw on them to support the, um, the new government. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I included this passage from Notes on the State of Virginia, which was cited in the election of 1800 to prove that Jefferson was an atheist, in which, you know, it, it's it's striking, if not shocking. He refers to a tradition of the Egyptians and Hebrews. Uh, he's referring to the flood, you know, the, the biblical story of the flood, and he reduces it <clears throat> in this passage to, you know, these Egyptians and told stories, so did the Hebrews, and he gives a very naturalistic account. And the key thing is that he refers to the laws of nature, causes of nature. For Jefferson, in this passage, those things are identical. Yet, when he's talking about moral and political matters, as he does later when talking about slavery, he, he, he invokes God's intervention in this perfectly ordered natural uh, system to bring about a good a good end. So there's a lot of, and I believe it's, I think it's true to say that there's more complexity, if not simple contradiction in Jefferson's talk about religion and politics than there is in Hamilton's. I would agree with that, yeah. Let me, uh, let me go here to a question that we have from one of our, uh, from one of our participants. Uh, Billy Gallagher uh, asks, uh, while comparing Hamilton and Jefferson, uh, to what extent did these two men uh, understand um, the compatibility between Christian doctrines, the Christian scriptures, um, with the concepts of the American founding, that is primarily with the principle of natural rights? Was there overlap in the, uh, the meaning and significance of, of, uh, of the Christian doctrines and the natural rights philosophy of the founders, which we know Jefferson and Hamilton both agreed on, but did they disagree over the extent to which uh, the Bible was in cooperation with uh, a Republican small r form of government? That's uh, a very, that's a great question. It's a tough one, again, particularly in regards to Hamilton, I think. Um, and I'm basing this really just on one document, and that's the passage I just read to you from the farmer refuted. But if I'm understanding the question uh, correctly, Hamilton did not see any contradiction between uh, the Christian doctrine that he seems to have believed in and the, uh, the, the, the concept of natural rights. I mean, when you, again, if you look at that passage that I just read, he seems to be stating that you know, human nature um, is is the, the 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 natural rights doctrine is very much uh, in in concert with the Christian doctrine of of uh, of the rights of man extending from the hand of the divinity itself, and that's unfortunately about as far as I can take that. 
Mm. You know, I would say that for Jefferson, there's there's um, um, there's a you know maybe typically there are a couple of ways to answer that question. Um, I, I think if you look at the letter and the reason I included it, it is partly for this reason, and it is a good I think a great a great question. If you look at the letter to um, his nephew Peter Carr, and again this is a private communication. Um, but it's it's important, I think, because he he in this letter he distinguishes moral philosophy from religion. He treats them as two separate topics. But his account of moral religion relies, in a sense, uh, on on God, right? So he says, man was destined for society. Um, his morality, therefore, was to be formed to this object. He was endowed with a sense of right and wrong, merely relative to this. Uh, and he says, you know, the, the, the creator would have been a bungler. And this is a language that Jefferson repeated throughout his whole life. Um, he who made us, again, he's accepting here that we were created, that the world is God's uh, creation. He who made us would have been a pitiful bungler if he had made the rules of our moral conduct a matter of science. So, <clears throat> although he separates religion and morality, when he talks about morality, he comes back to this notion that when you're talking about natural rights, um, natural law, just to, you know, to use these terms kind of loosely for a moment, um, it, it still depends for him on this notion that, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, there's an order to nature, and that order is uh, was created by God, and He gave human beings a certain kind of nature as a social animal that allowed them to uh, live together and get along and and lead productive lives and so forth. So, in that sense, I would say there's no difference between. That their explanation for it may be different, but there's no difference between Hamilton and Jefferson here in, in seeing somehow that our morality or political life is somehow based in a notion that this was intended by God. Um, yet, when Jefferson, there are other passages in Notes on Virginia in which Jefferson takes a very, um, you could say, naturalistic, non theistic view of things and says, and there are other letters, um, especially when he was writing to people who were of a kind of scientific disposition um, in which he takes the same tone. And he and you can't see any um, you might say, you know, any place for God in this system. It's functions on its own. Uh, it's not even clear when Jefferson talks about nature in that way, in a scientific uh, view, that he even believes the world was created. In fact, there's a letter in which. <clears throat> Um, he speculates, you know, based on some recent publications he's read from, or typically from France, you know, uh, speculates that that uh, uh, you could explain these things without without the intervention of God. Um, so let me, you know, I, not to go on too long, but let, let me just say that the key thing for Jefferson was this this problem of the intervention of God, and he he was. When he looked back at history, what he saw was that 
uh, all of man's political life prior to the founding of the United States uh, had been, you could say, um, illegitimate, had simply been a question of despotism and tyranny. And what distinguished the American founding, in effect, was this uh, a reliance on what was available to human beings through their reason. And if you could have intervention in that political order or that natural order, that would mean human beings couldn't rely on their reason. And it would give to Jefferson, it was the beginning of the argument that priests and the divine right of kings should rule. Because if human beings couldn't understand with their own unaided reason, uh, what was going on in the world, then to some degree they were going to be dependent on priests and kings ruling by divine right. And again, I'm not saying that argument is is true, is right, but that was his view. And so even when he talked about uh, morality, he, he was very, very reluctant to acknowledge anything that would give any possibility of God intervening directly in political life because he believed that that would that would ultimately be manipulated uh for despotic tyrannical reasons yeah that that may be where there is a a, a break that's where the break occurs between hamilton and jefferson uh if you look at the farewell address which uh, was written under the pen name of George Washington, but actually <laughs> sorry. Uh, you know that passage. I mean, there's a there's a passage that I had the folks read for today, where in the farewell, Washington slash Hamilton say, uh, "Let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion." Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in the exclusion of religious principle. And just, just to note um, for everyone today, Washington actually struck out a sentence that Hamilton had written, which had an even stronger sentiment and I'll read it to you right now. This is the stronger sentiment. Does it, national morality, not require the aid of a generally received and div divinely authoritative religion? I'll repeat it again. Does, does it, national morality, not require the aid of a genuine, generally received and divinely authoritative religion? And that position, that's 1796, of course, uh, by the time you get to 1802, when Hamilton is proposing the creation of a Christian constitutional society, uh, that that um, gives the full force to the sentiments that I just expressed. Hamilton was attempting to create, in a sense, a uh, Christian federalist political movement to counter the the Jeffersonian Jacobins. Yes, and uh, and Doctor Doctor Knott. Um, Hamilton doesn't have nearly the confidence in the capacity of mankind to behave reasonably that Jefferson uh, has expressed. So you cite the 1802 letter. Uh, he also says there, and this is just a, a wonderful line. Let me uh, let me bring this to our our um, 
a participant's attention here where Hamilton says uh, in the first paragraph, nothing is more fallacious than to expect to produce any valuable or permanent results in political projects by relying merely on the reason of men. Men are rather reasoning than reasonable animals, for the most part governed by the impulse of passion. That's a great line mm -hmm. um, and really sort of undercuts uh, Jefferson's uh, confidence in the reason of mankind to come and know the truth. Is that right? That is correct. <clears throat> Absolutely true. Uh, Jefferson had far more faith in the uh, uh, the ability of the the common man, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, to, to 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 govern themselves. And of course, this plays into I think a something of a caricature of Hamilton being an authoritarian. I don't think that's true, uh, but there's no question he did not share the sort of uh, uh, I would say rosy assessment. Of, of mankind that, that the sage of Monticello, Monticello possessed. <laughs> yeah, I, I would, um, I, in general, I would agree with that. I think one thing that's, you, you, uh, I'm not quite sure how to, uh, there, there's a certain sense in which that's true. On the other hand, <clears throat> Jefferson was given, I, I think that it's true that Jefferson was given, given to some wishful thinking, uh, you might say, and not entirely, but in, when he talks about, for example, in this letter to Peter Carr, one of the things that Jefferson, and I think this distinguishes him from, from Hamilton, as far as I know, and Steve will correct me if this is wrong, but Jefferson was a, a supporter of the view that human beings have a moral, what, he, what was called a moral sense. And it's, it operates not unlike the, the invisible hand in the economy. Um, in the sense that human beings have certain passions, and these passions are not themselves reasonable, but if left alone, they produce a reasonable result. Just like the free market, you know, we're all trying to, you know, maximize our profit, and somehow it turns out that we we serve the common good in doing so. Um, and and Jefferson Jefferson believed this, and you can say, well, gee, that's convenient, you know, uh, and I would say it is. Uh, <laughs> It may not, therefore, it, just because it's convenient doesn't mean it's not true, but it's certainly, from Jefferson's viewpoint, this belief was um, was an important part of his understanding of why you we didn't have to rely as much or at all uh, in, in Jefferson's more, you know, extreme statements about this. We don't have to rely at all on religion to help guide us politically in any institutional sense. Um, that is to say, uh, we don't need a, <clears throat> a national religion, an established church, certainly, uh, and we can have a separation of church and state because there are natural grounds, again, natural, not supernatural grounds for believing that human beings can get along and things can work out. So in a certain sense, you could say Hamilton and Jefferson agreed on the passionate nature of human beings and that those passions were stronger than their reason. But Jefferson believed that those passions themselves, although not reasonable, if allowed, if not, if not corrupted and perverted by uh, big government, powerful government, if not corrupted and perverted by a national church, would produce a reasonable result. 
So I noted, uh, just to add again, not to, not to go on too long, but I noted that Billy Gallagher, as a follow-up, uh, asked a question about um, was Hamilton concerned or feared what would happen to, um, you know, the, 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 to Americans if uh, they were allowed or, or, or if their freedom was not somehow guided by religious belief. And I think that that, you know, again, with, with regard, uh, Steve was saying, with regard to the French Revolution, Jefferson, uh, Hamilton began to fear that more in the United States. Jefferson never feared it. He thought, in fact, it was true and that you only got uh, a bad outcome if you tried to restrain the natural impulses of human beings. Yeah, there's, there's in response to, to Billy Gallagher's uh, follow-up, uh, there's no question uh, by 1802 that Hamilton feared for the future welfare of this country. Um, and, and part of that fear, uh, let, let me make it clear, I'm one of, I'm, I'm probably in the minority in terms of people who kind of look at and study Alexander Hamilton. I actually believe his proposal for a Christian constitutional society and some of the earlier statements about the importance of religion. I think this was a genuine, genuine uh, principled stand. This was not merely political calculation. Uh, so having said that, uh, by 1802, I believe that Hamilton did, did not think that it was a healthy thing to assume that morality could be maintained in a political order while it was, in a sense, radically separated from religion. I hope that that makes sense. Mm. In other words, you, you, can't, you, you cannot have uh, a healthy political order where you have a high wall of separation between, between church and state, certainly anyways in a regime based on self-government. Let me ask you a question with regard to the farewell address. Um, I, I think that what you just said, the position you just took, makes uh, more sense. Not to say it didn't make sense, but <laughs> the, 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 the depart it, it, it seems less of a departure for Hamilton if we can agree that when he was writing the farewell address, he wasn't simply trying to put Washington's words into Washington's mouth, but he was actually putting his own sentiments. Is that your view of the farewell dress generally? Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and by the way, let me make it clear. I mean, I made that little crack about Hamilton, you know, uh, Wash, uh, Hamilton writing under the pen name of Washington. Hamilton did write this address, but I mean, it was carefully edited and carefully controlled by George Washington. I mean, these drafts were going back and forth between, uh, I believe, Philadelphia and Hamilton up in New York, and Washington maintained very tight control here. So there's there's nothing in this farewell address that George Washington did not sign off on. Mm -hmm. let, me, uh, let me pose a question now to, to both of you. Um, as we right as we're continuing to dip our toes here into Jefferson and Hamilton on the question of religion, um, is it right to say that that Hamilton's view on this subject, that is that uh, religion has a a role and a very important role to play uh, in politics? Um, were not the other major American founders, Adams, Washington, 
uh, James Wilson, the others, more in conformity with, with Hamilton on this question than Jefferson, with the exception of James Madison. Aren't really Jefferson and Madison sort of the outliers on this question in regards to the, uh, the other American founders as a whole? Yeah, I, I would certainly agree with you, Jason. Uh, absolutely. Um, but but I'll, I'll defer to David. No, I, I think that's true. And that's part of the irony when the Supreme Court in 1947 cites, uh, you know, they use Jefferson's phrase, a wall of separation. And they also cited Madison's uh, memorial and remonstrance. <laughs> they were, uh, as the authorities for the founding, they, they were actually citing the two outliers. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and again, you so know, you're you, saying you're saying the outliers during the founding now represent the the popular view of the relationship between religion and politics today. So the outliers won. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you you have to ask why did the court? Well, it, it's 1947. Uh, That's a high point. Um, I I don't know whether Steve agrees with this, but that was kind of a high point. One of the high points in Jefferson's reputation because of the New Deal. Um, and so the court tended to look at American public opinion tended to look to Jefferson at that point. Now, I, you know, he, he we, we are in, we are in a low point for, for Jefferson uh, in his reputation and his influence now, perhaps. Uh, but in 47, it was a high point. So it's a it's a kind of I don't know if irony is the right word, but it's it's uh, it, when you read Everson, the case in 1947 that applied the First Amendment to, to the states, um, and they cite Madison and Jefferson, you, you kind of, I, I, you know, scratch your head and say, well, you know, why those two? I mean, what they said, I, I think all of the documents that, that, I, that I chose show there is a consistency in Jefferson's view, and he would have seen the court's opinion and said, yeah, wall of separation, that's right. But that was not, um, that was an, out, my, my view is that that was, his and Madison's views were outliers in the founding. Yeah, I, I would agree. And uh, is, uh, uh, do I have it right that Justice Black was the one who cited the high wall of separation line, or am I? Both the majority and minority uh, cited it. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Justice Black was, of course, a big fan of of Thomas Jefferson and despised Alexander Hamilton. And as I know, I'm off the track here a bit, but as David mentioned, during the New Deal, the New Deal era was sort of the high watermark for Jeffersonian cultists. I mean, it's FDR that builds the uh, the beautiful Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., literally has a hand in selecting the quotes that are engraved on the wall. Uh, and this is definitely a low, low watermark for, for uh, Alexander Hamilton. But the larger point that Jefferson and Madison were, in a sense, the founding outliers on religion i th i think is entirely accurate in in the long run they've they've won the battle at least for now uh, yeah and i think that's partly because <clears throat> the supreme court uh by interpreting the law as it did uh helped to change public opinion on on that issue True. so so there's a way in which you know that True. that influence uh has carried on um, what I, you know, I was looking, um, James, James Hooper has asked a good question uh, in the chat. But can there be doubt that Jefferson had some understanding of a personal God with the famous, I tremble to think that God is just um, 
when he's thinking about the injustice of slavery and he says, I tremble to think that God is just and he'll judge America harshly mm-hmm. for the institution of slavery. Um, and I, I would say I, I can't. Uh, I, it, it, this, this question is a it's a good one. So what what do we mean by by a personal God? And I think that the general consensus is that Jefferson what he had in mind was a was a a god that i think would be different from what most people now think of as a personal god he's it'd be more in in line some people would say look what he really meant was there was a there was a a kind of benign spirit if you will that ruled ultimately ruled the universe and evidence of that according to jefferson would be that um human passions when let loose, uh, actually work to a good end. But there's also a lot of evidence uh, in his writing that he had a more, uh, you could say, typical uh, understanding of a personal God. Um, you know, it's, so it's, it's, I think ultimately it's a very hard question to answer in, a, in any kind of precise way. I, I think that he, um, there, there, I, I think that he, um, in the letters he wrote, even in the letters he wrote, I think it's clear that he speaks in a way that he thinks will be persuasive to the recipient of his correspondence. And, and he's a remarkably difficult person to read, I think, you for that reason. There's a, there's a way in which Hamilton is, I would say, admirably much more forthright and consistent in all of his writing, and in Jefferson, it's, it's you're 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 always kind of left saying, "Hmm, you really have to think." Who's he writing that letter to? He speaks differently to John Adams, for example, than he speaks to uh, Priestley. You know, uh, uh, you know. So the, Priestley being a kind of free free thinker, scientific sort. So it's very it's very hard to know that. But I don't. I'm not trying to argue that Jefferson was a atheist or you know militant atheist or something like that i think that there's very little evidence for that there is there is in the letters and and i would also say that he became more circumspect the older he got he didn't like the public controversy and so forth uh, so he was careful about what he said but there's evidence in the letters that in a, in a kind of um that, that he was willing to think about things uh, you know as he said you could you know, the world would have much the shape it had, whether God existed or not, given what we know of the laws of nature and the way things work, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think from that you could conclude that as a personal matter, he did, he was an atheist or something like that. But it's a, it's very difficult to decide these things. The only Sorry. thing I can add to James Hooper's uh, question and to David's response is um, it and David did say this, I mean, I, I don't think we can say that Jefferson um, w- would would have a, a modern Christian, devout Christian understanding of, uh, of a personal God. David basically said that, I think I heard him correctly. And we, we do need to point out that he did get a hold of a copy of the New Testament and go through it with a pair of scissors and yanked out all of the... Got out all of the you know, references to Jesus's divinity, uh, which to me speaks of an ego that knows no bounds, but that's a separate 
uh, <laughs> <issue>. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, uh, um, his, his edit again. You know, his editing. What what he what he said, and I think this is um, Jefferson was primarily. And I, I would say one thing you 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 have to keep in mind is Jefferson believed that ultimately these questions of the existence of God could not be answered. In, in any definitive way. Humans simply didn't have access to that kind of knowledge. And he was focused primarily on religion and politics. And, and what he did was really edit the New Testament uh, to, to, to cut out the miraculous stuff and put the emphasis on uh, Christ's moral teaching, which he, he believed was, as, I mean, he took that moral teaching seriously. There are a couple of letters in which he says, you know, the Greeks got duties to ourselves right. Uh, Christ got duties to others correct. And and the implication is that a full understanding of human morality requires both of those. And and Jefferson would say a full a full full citizenship, Republican citizenship required both of those. Let me go to another question from one of our participants, um, Brian Evans. Um, he asked this, what is the best way to explain the establishment clause to my students? There seems to be a lot of confusion among students about the mixture of church and state. So the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Just on its face, that does seem to be somewhat confusing language, respecting an establishment of religion. What is meant by an establishment, and how ought we to understand that in light of this phrase that's constantly coming up, um, that has its origins, of course, in Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist, a wall of separation uh, between church and state. And I'll just add as an aside, students are always surprised to find that the phrase separation of church and state actually doesn't appear in the Constitution. That it's from one of uh, from one of Jefferson's letters. So, again, what's the best way to go about explaining uh, the First Amendment's establishment clause? And maybe we'll also consider free the free exercise clause here uh, to our students. Steve, you want to you want to take a shot at that first? Uh, well, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a very very good and tough question. Uh, yeah. My understanding has always been that this, that those clauses in the First Amendment were an attempt to prohibit a, a nationally established, a federally established church. Um, and I'm sure most of our attendees today are aware that state-based, uh, state-established churches were a very <clears throat> common thing, at least uh, in, in the Northeast, and I think some of the northeastern states had established churches well into the 19th century, I think even up maybe to the 1840s, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps New Jersey comes to mind. Massachusetts um, and Connecticut or others yeah. that have yeah. established religions, yeah. I grew up, in fact, I'm talking to you from, from a town in Massachusetts, but the one I was born in a few miles from here, I mean, the congregational church in the small town of Paxton, Massachusetts, uh, was supported by, by uh, 
by by the town of of Paxton through taxes essentially and sustained by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So I don't think uh, there was an understanding that the federal bill of rights would reach in and and um, end those practices. Uh, right. And that provision of the Massachusetts Constitution, which allowed for that, wasn't repealed until I think it was 1833. That's right. right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So which is kind of amazing now when you think of the People's Republic of Massachusetts, which is pretty much an atheist stronghold. But, <laughs> but in other states, in other states, they uh, they prohibited an establishment of religion. I think uh, one of the letters points this out in uh, New York and Pennsylvania, I think, had had uh, prohibited uh, established religions. And so Jefferson sort of looks to those sure, uh, as sure. the model. And I do think we can all do our students some some good by by teaching them this this fact and letting them know, as you mentioned, Jason, that this notion of a high wall of separation or the phrase separation of church and state is is not in the Constitution and in, is in fact a uh, I, I was going to say invention of the Supreme Court. I know that's a loaded term, but but to some extent, it it was an invention of the Supreme Court. Hmm. Um. Uh, if, I, if I can, I'll, I'll put in a plug here. The religion and politics, the religion and politics in American, um, religion in American history and politics web pages, which are part of the TAH web pages, has a chart under politics and religion. There's a chart which lays out uh, state establishments when they were disestablished. And I think when you look at this chart, what you're struck by is the real complexity and differences. Some states prohibited ministers uh, holding elective office. Other states required tax support. And this this all through the 1790s into the 19th century, all of these things were being debated. So if you look at the states, you, you don't see a wall of separation between church and state. Um, again, from Jefferson's point of view, he I think it's fair to say he wanted that wall mm. Of separation, but again, why is Jefferson's opinion here uh, authoritative? Um, it, you know, if you're looking at what was the historical circumstances, um, that that wouldn't be the case. Uh, the other thing is that um, I, I think maybe, maybe you know one way you can think about it, if if you read the First Amendment literally, make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What you're read narrowly, you would say, well, that prohibits Congress. And if you want to, you know, we now apply the amendment to the states that prohibits uh, any legislature from passing a law that that establishes a religion, meaning that it has state support. And then the debates always turn on if you accept that principle, which I think all the founders would have. And I think it's a good, solid principle, good principle. But then what the question then becomes, what constitutes state support? So in the Everson case, there were vouchers being given to parents uh, to pay for transportation to school, and the parents could choose to which school the transportation occurred. And uh, the 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 court divided on the question of whether that constituted or was the you know the first step towards an establishment of religion. So one one view has been well if you're if religion, if Washington and Hamilton are right, 
and and religion is necessary a necessary support indispensable support for republican government then why can't that government in some way support religious practice as long as it's not discriminating in favor of one religion rather than another and so th there's enormous i think uh complexity and difficulty in deciding that question and the courts have over time uh, tended to take the wall of separation to mean no connection between the two, but it doesn't seem to me that was, as they say, the original intent of the amendment, if you judge by the historical circumstances. Could I, could I follow up, David? And I want to, I want to jump on a, a question that just appeared, and I apologize to some of the folks who asked questions earlier that haven't been addressed, but Stacey Moses just submitted one uh, saying, so did Jefferson want a wall of separation in the states as well as the nation? Uh, I'd be curious to hear David's response to that. I genuinely would want to hear his answer to this. Yeah, I think Jefferson did. Yeah, yeah. Me, too. me too. But you know Jefferson far better than I do. Yeah, he. I think he, uh, he would have wanted that, again, because he felt any mixture of the two could only uh, work to the disadvantage of of free government. And and I will say, you know, the 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 statute for religious liberty was passed in Virginia in in out of a coalition uh, put together by Madison that included many Christians, uh, those people who were not part of the establishment and Baptists who have a tradition of also wanting a, a wall of separation between church and state. So there are many Christians who who feel the same, who take the same view because they believe that any mixture of religion and and politics ultimately will corrupt religion. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. But uh, for uh, for Jefferson, when he says a wall of separation between church and state, even Jefferson doesn't mean by that a wall of separation between God and state, right? Because in that same letter from to the Danbury Baptist, doesn't that letter? Uh, conclude with an official prayer from President Jefferson. In the same breath, he says that he says there should be a wall of separation between church and state. He says, I reciprocate your kind prayers and pray for this nation and so on and so forth. So for Jefferson, even establishment doesn't mean um, that we should have a complete separation between God and state, just church and state. Those things mean different things. Is that, am I being clear in that, in that yeah, question? You could, you could say that, I think, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, what would it mean? Uh, what, I mean, I, I understand church and state. God and state is a little harder, uh, you know, God is a little harder to deal with, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you, you know, so Madison, Madison, for example, would not issue a Thanksgiving, you know, a, a request for prayer and, and so forth, which were commonly done in the states, not just in Massachusetts or Connecticut, um, because he saw that as a illegitimate mixing of religion and politics. Uh, and I don't really, I, I wouldn't put much uh, weight on the conclusion of the letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. Um, Again, he's he knows he's addressing clergymen, and it's a good thing to say to clergymen to talk about prayer with clergymen. And I don't mean Jefferson's being cynical or manipulative. Uh, I mean Steve Mayfield he is, 
uh, which is not to say that Jefferson couldn't be manipulative. I don't believe he was ever really cynical. He could be manipulative, but I don't believe he's simply being manipulative here. He's talking to the clergymen the way they are accustomed to speak. Um, you know, he writes letters to Indians in which he he talks like an Indian. Um, you know, Steve Steve is amused by that. He's he's a very he's a good a very good politician, right? Uh, Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on that conclusion. Jefferson, I think, would have been very. Uh, he would have been concerned about a president who was overly religious in his official duties, his personal life. That's his personal life. But insofar as a president uh, evokes God uh, too frequently or something like that, I think Jefferson would have been um, concerned about that. Now, again, to say that Jefferson's concerned about it doesn't mean he was right to be concerned about it or that we should all follow Jefferson on this point. Um, but it, but I think to, you know, you Jefferson was took a very dim view of the connection between religion and politics, let alone church and state. Uh, Jason, I don't know if that answered your question or. Yeah, no, 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 it does. It does. And I'm also just wondering, maybe as a very quick follow up here, Jefferson, of course, is also the writer, the author of the Declaration of Independence with its four references to God, nature's God, creator, supreme judge of the world, uh, and divine providence. Um, what about that? Weren't those, weren't those forced on him? Or not, sorry, not forced, but weren't those part of the, the edits that were suggested by others? Um, no, in fact, those no. are in, uh, those are, I, I, you know, I would say, in fact, um, he, there, there is. You could say there's even more, slightly more religious language because this phrase "self-evident" in the original version, it's um, sacred and undeniable. Undeniable. Or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and Franklin is the one who took that out. So, but look, I mean, the Declaration is not Jefferson's document. Uh, I think Jefferson really was there trying to write a document that expressed the views of Americans. Good. Good. And, and I don't think we should say, you know. Uh, that's Jefferson's document. I mean, I think he was, when later in his years, he was very happy to take credit for the authorship. Uh, but he did, also, he did also say that it was an expression of the American mind. He was trying to, to, to encapsulate the views of people who, who were arguing for independence. And I think that's, he, he, he was sincere in saying that. David, I just want to make sure I've got this, this straight, that so the, the references... To, to nature's God and God and so forth, that that's Jefferson. That's not, those were not, in a sense, edits or corrections forced on him. Right. So if, if somebody out there can, can quickly Google the original draft, which is, you know, online. Um, but those, those ref, those, that language is Jefferson's. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure. I thought I've heard otherwise, and I'm glad to be, to be corrected. Well, I'll, uh, you know, I'll check on that, but, but people online can, uh, okay. can check on it, too. Um, but again, you know, I don't, I don't read too much into that in the sense sure. that I, I think he really was trying to, uh, you know, the, 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 the vote, the, you know, when reading the history up to the up to the agreement to, to declare independence, there was a political problem. And Adams was was, uh, you know, trying to get they wanted unanimity. They wanted 
uh, you know, to show to, to strengthen their claims. And I, I, I don't think there's any um, doubt that that Jefferson really intended that document to be an ex an expression of um, widely held views. All right. Well, we we've sort of lost track of uh, of Hamilton here along the way. Let if maybe as in the final minutes that we have, try to come back to Hamilton uh, a little bit. Uh, Doctor Knott, you had mentioned that right. Hamilton in the uh, early 19th century during the French Revolution really um, feared for the future of his country. Now that we sort of look around us in the modern day and see that the Jefferson and Madison view on this question of religion is now the the popular one or the the dominant one um uh have would hamilton think his fears have been realized or would he uh would he have uh would he be a little more optimistic than that yeah great question well again let me make this clear that i'm i have a kind of minority view amongst folks who who study hamilton and have written about hamilton um I believe if Hamilton were to come back today, he'd be impressed with a number of things. He'd certainly be impressed with the fact that we're still an economic superpower, maybe slipping a bit. But, you know, the fact is that his Hamilton's economic foundation sort of launched the United States on the path to becoming an economic power, which is something he always hoped for his country. Uh, I think he'd be impressed by our military power. But this is where I probably break ranks with the majority of folks who write about Hamilton. Um, I think he would be upset, would be disturbed by uh, the character, caricature, excuse me, char character of the citizenry, uh, particularly the, um, uh, to use a term he would probably be comfortable with, the, the licentiousness uh, that one sees all around us. I don't want to portray him. He was hardly a Puritan. He was hardly without sin himself, uh, as we all know. Um, but um, I, I, I do think that the kinds of things that he feared, uh, that he saw in the French Revolution that were eventually, in a sense, transported here, did have the effect of undermining the character of the citizenry. And... Um, uh, transforming the the nature of our political order in a in a in a bad way. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and Dr. I Tucker, what would on this? Oh. And what would uh, what would Jefferson think of the modern day, uh, Dr. Tucker? <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess I'm inclined to say it depends who he was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think he would be. Uh, I think he would be. Uh, well, let me let me put it this way. He he. There was a, always a strain in him in in Jefferson that believed that re Republican government was a very um, precarious operation, and um, he he agreed. I think Madison and he agreed with this that there were certain conditions that were necessary for Republican government, and I think that both of them. Uh, there was a, a scholar who, in fact, taught uh, at the at the graduate school I went to, who who claimed uh, in his dissertation that 
Madison predicted Republican government would come to an end in the United States in 1932. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> I, I, I have been unable to, through the guy's footnotes, to track down the, uh, the document in which Madison made that prediction. But they did both think that <laughs> there were conditions that would, would render Republican government impossible. And I think that those, we, we have achieved those conditions. Now, hmm. I'm not claiming that, therefore, Republican self-government is impossible. I think they would be stunned at the degree of self-government we have maintained, despite the fact that the conditions which they thought were necessary for that government no longer uh, obtain in the United States. And I think they would be shocked by the, you know, many, many of the things that go on. Uh, you know, I think they would be shocked watching HBO um, <laughs> just because there were these weird images on there on these things called the TV, but by the content of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I would say that that by and by and large, Jefferson was that this will sound odd in certain ways. He was more pessimistic about Republican government because he had a certain idea of what that kind of government would would be like and it was it it was almost impossible to attain uh and the difference with jefferson uh, with hamilton was that he believed hamilton was the the financial system and the other th uh things that hamilton supported would in fact make that kind of republican government impossible it would do it in more quickly than it would would other would otherwise be the case yeah no and that was that was i think a very legitimate concern of, of jefferson's hmm. jason could i add something about hamilton's own uh, personal religious views religious yes views? please please this concerns the loss of of hamilton's eldest son philip uh, in 1802, so two years, two years prior, two years plus prior to to Hamilton's death and the duel with Burr, um, there's no doubt in my mind that that uh, the loss of his eldest son uh, rocked him considerably. Need, needless to say, uh, but I do think it was an event. And again, here I, I may be in the minority again, once again, as far as people who study Hamilton, but. I do think he was so rocked by that event uh, that that contributed to um, or, or that deepened or furthered his own personal religious beliefs. Now, if he were truly a Christian, he would never, Alexander Hamilton never would have accepted the duel with Aaron Burr. He would have avoided it since it was uh, considered, you know, out of bounds for a Christian to engage in a duel. But uh, he did engage in the duel, but his letter, Hamilton's letter, he wrote two letters, I should say, to his wife on the eve of the duel. The second one is very interesting, and perhaps I should have included it in the reading for today. Uh, but if you take a look at that letter, you'll see him talk about uh, the scruples of a Christian having determined me to expose my own life to an extent rather than subject myself to the guilt of taking the life of another. In other words, he's saying he's going to throw away his shot. He is not going to uh, take Burr's life. And he understood that this increased his own hazard. Uh, but then he goes on to note that, uh, you know, should the worst thing happen, he'd rather die innocent 
then live uh, guilty and goes on to talk about the importance of his wife's Christian faith and notes that they will someday meet again. So uh, there's, there's a considerable amount of evidence. And then, of course, I should note when he's dying after he's been shot by Burr, he requests that the president of, uh, of Columbia College, this Reverend Moore, uh, come to him. He wants to be given the last rites of the church. Uh, he wants to take communion. At first, this Reverend Moore refuses because Hamilton, he finds out, had participated in a duel. But then he returns and administers the sacrament of communion. And Moore gives this very moving account that he wrote within 24 hours of Hamilton's death about discussing with Hamilton uh, his Christianity to the extent that he could discuss, but Hamilton was conscious enough to talk. Um, so I would just recommend if some, students, some of the folks out there are interested in Hamilton's own religious beliefs, if you look at the death of his own son in a duel, and then the events leading up to the duel, and then the immediate aftermath, uh, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that this man was uh, genuinely Christian. Very good, very good, very good. Well, uh, I notice now that we uh, that we are out of time. We already passed the uh, the deadline. So let me uh, go ahead and thank both of our panelists, Dr. Uh, Stephen Knott and Dr. Uh, David Tucker, for your uh, contributions, for your insights, uh, for your recommendations uh, this morning. Um, thank you very much for joining us. I also want to thank the Ashbrook Center here at Ashland University for uh, for hosting and for setting up uh, this you know, extraordinarily informative webinar uh, this morning. And of course, also to thank all of our uh, our participants uh, who joined us. Uh, thank you for your questions. Um, they were top notch, as they always are, as we have come to expect. Uh, from you. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, are there any other uh, uh, closing points here, gentlemen? No, just thank you, Jason. You did a great job. Yeah, thanks very much, Jason. My pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope, uh, I hope you guys did too. Uh, I learned a lot. Terrific. Thank All right. You. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks, Steve. Oh, thanks, David. Great job.